chapter 15. This is where it gets really cool, and it's also really weird. <laughs> After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield, the one who will reward you in great abundance. So notice God is taking the glory for the defeat, but also turning around and proclaiming how much he wants to give Abram. Abundance. But Abram responded and said, O sovereign Yahweh, what will you give me since I continue to be childless and my heir is Eleazar of Damascus? Abram added, since you have not given me a descendant, then look, one born in my house will be my heir. Now, knows that he calls him Elohim Yahweh, sovereign Yahweh. This idea here is used of marrying the idea of, remember we talked about Elohim as kingship, sovereignty, authority, creator over all things. Where the name Yahweh means the covenantal relational God who blesses you and is always with you relationally and pursues you to the ends of the earth. This word only appears a few times, this combination of both Elohim and Yahweh together only appears a few times in the book of Genesis. And what the author is letting you know here is that this God is the God, he is the king of the universe. Because something's going to happen here. Chapter 15 is where God is going to make a covenant with Abram. And it is going to become the most important covenant in all the Bible other than the one that Christ is going to make. And it's going to be rooted in the four promises of chapter 12. So we get the promises in 12. Now we're going to get those promises made into a covenant in chapter 15. So this is the king of creation, Elohim sovereign. But he's also the Yahweh, the relational, covenantal, pursuing God. And now Abram understands this. Now, we talked about this a while ago. Most likely he does not know the name Yahweh yet because the name Yahweh is not given until Exodus chapter 3. However, the narrator is telling you that even though he may not know the name Yahweh, he does have the theological concept in his brain of Yahweh, that a God that is with you, a God that makes covenants. So the narrator is letting you know that Abram understands that God is completely sovereign over all things, but he is also a relational God that makes covenants with people. And so what does he ask? What will you give me? Now, don't see this as a lack of faith, because if there was no faith, he'd be walking away from God. Doubting God is not always a lack of faith. Doubting God and going to other people for answers is a lack of faith. Doubting and going to God for answers it's just being human. And it's actually an incredible act of faith because even though you have doubts, you still go to him. And so he goes to God, and the reality is it's been 15, 10, 15 years, and he still has no descendants, and Lot has walked away from him, though he's still holding out hope, and Lot didn't choose to come back home after the great rescue. He chose to go back to Sodom, which says something about Lot's heart. And he's saying, I'm a tangible creature who needs tangible evidence of the things that are unseen. I need something, God. Give me a covenant. 
because the only person who's going to be my descendant right now is Eleazar of Damascus. Now, this one's hard. There's a lot of debate among scholars around this. The word Damascus may not actually mean the word Damascus. It comes from a word. Uh, it's one of those words I can only say when I'm looking at it. Meshek, ben Meshek. It comes from a word ben Meshek, which is only used here in this one place ever in the entire Bible and all the other writings outside the Bible. That makes it very hard to figure out what that word means. So a lot of people translate Damascus because it's kind of connected to the word Damascus, but that's a whole boring word study that most people are not interested in. But Eleazar, we don't exactly know what the word Eleazar means either. Now, most people think that this is a servant of Abram, which it might be. But here's the question. This is the only time that Eleazar is ever mentioned by name. And the question is, if Eleazar is such a trustworthy servant of Abram that he's going to inherit everything of Abram, why hasn't he been mentioned yet? You would think the guy who's going to get all the blessings of God after Abram would be mentioned more than one time in the entire Bible. He says this weird word, this Eleazar of Damascus is the only person who's going to get the inheritance. But what's interesting is that he goes on and says, Abram added, since you have not given me a descendant, look, the one born in my house is my heir. But that phrase, the one born in my house, suggests biological connection. Well, there's only one person that Abram knows that has a biological connection to him in his house. And who is that? Lot. So here's the great debate among the scholars. Does Abram believe that a servant by the name of Eleazar is going to get his inheritance, which is not uncommon in the ancient world? If you have no descendants, obviously someone that you trust and respect, a business partner or, or your most trusted servant will get everything. Or is Eleazar the title? A lot of names in the Bible, like Abimelech, are not personal names. They're titles of positions. Could he be talking about Lot? that Lot has the title Eleazar, who is born biologically in this household. So it could be that Abram's thinking, look, I have no children, and Lot has walked away from me, which means the only person that's going to inherit everything is a servant. And that is not you making me into a great nation. That's you making my servant into a great nation. Or it could be that he's thinking, the only person who is my biological descendant is Lot, and he's walked away from me and gone God knows where, where we know geographically, but spiritually, who knows, and he's not coming back, which still leaves me with no descendant and becoming a great nation. L.A. Turner, a really respected scholar, tends to point towards the Lot, and a lot of scholars are beginning to think that he's making a really good argument for that actually might be Lot, because it fits the context. It fits the context of him bringing Lot with him, him giving everything to Lot, him chasing Lot down, and Lot will be the person he'll be thinking about at Sodom and Gomorrah, where Eleazar seems to just pop into one verse and disappear and never show up again, doesn't seem to fit the greater context. But other than that, we don't really know. It could be point blank Eleazar. It could be he's talking about Lot. But the point is that he's saying, nobody's going to be my descendants. Nobody's going to be my descendants. But look, the word of Yahweh, verse 4, came to him. 
This man will not be your heir, but instead a son who comes from your own body will be your heir. Now, this makes it really confusing because wouldn't it be nice if Yahweh just kind of named him by name? And then we would know who he's talking about. But he says this man. Now, why does God not say that? Because in inheritances, saying the name of somebody actually gives power to them. Names are, we, we, we just name people because we like the sound of that name. Some of you might have named somebody because it had meaning, because the culture, but most Americans are just, I'm not saying that's bad, it's just different. It's unrelatable. We name people because we like the phonetic sound. And even if we do name somebody with some kind of meaning, most of us just pick a biblical name, and we kind of know that biblical meaning, but it doesn't really like resonate into the soul and the being of who we are. But remember, names are everything in the culture. Jews would often not name their kids until maybe three or six months after they are born because they wanted to pick a name that really described them, that was who they were, their character. And then in the ancient world, and superstitious, to name somebody's name gives you power over them. It gives you authority over them. And when you, even, if you, even if you watch um, kingships like in the medieval period, when they transfer the, king, the, the crown from the father to the son, if, if you have, can read any of those documents or you watch an actual accurate thing in movies of that happening, saying the name of the one who's getting the crown becomes a very repetitious thing in the ceremony because you're giving power to that inheritance. And we all know even today, if you're getting inheritance, whose name is on that will has great power. Especially, it must be written a certain way. And so God is not giving power to Lot or Eleazar by naming his name when talking about the inheritance. And then God adds something that he hasn't said before. A kid from your own body. This is the first time that God has directly said it. Now, we, we, we kind of assume it, but before you get on Abram from having little faith, remember, God has never directly said, your own son. He just said, I will make you into a great nation. But now he's saying, your own son. Now, that's going to blow Abraham away. That's now, why does he not say your own son yet? Because Abram just met God in chapter 12. He's not ready for his brain and his hair to be blown back yet. But now that Abram's been walking with God and seeing God transcend the impossible, now he's ready for the next stage of mathematics, so to speak, and he's ready to be introduced to something even more impossible. But notice what God still does not tell Abram, that Sarah will be the mother. That still doesn't come yet, which means that you can't really blame Abram too much too for Ishmael either. Because he's not specifically mentioned Sarah yet. And so it says, your own son from your own body. And Yahweh took him outside and said, gaze at the sky and count the stars. You were able to count them. And then he said to him, so you will be your descendants. Now I already talked about that significance of the stars. But another significance is he's pushing Abram to the impossible. Now we're not just going from the earth. Now we're going to the stars and the stars are unknown. The stars are mysterious. The stars have even less boundaries than even the dust of the sand. There is nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can't do. And here's what's powerful. Abram believed Yahweh, and Yahweh considered his response faith as proof of genuine loyalty. 
This is one of the most important passages in the Bible on the theology of faith and works. It's so important that it becomes a very key verse quoted in the book of Romans. It becomes a very key verse quoted in the book of Galatians, all dealing with what role does the law have in our life. And this is what Paul is going to make in Galatians or Romans. How can Abram be declared righteous when he does not have the law? Because the law does not make one righteous. And one does not need the law in order to be righteous. And so he is declared to have rights. Now righteousness has the idea of believing and doing the right thing in accordance to the standard of the God that you answer to. You're right, justified before God because you're believing and doing. But righteousness is specifically on the doing, which is interesting because Abram hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything and God declares him righteous, which strengthens even more the faith part, the believed. He believed. Now, the word believe does not mean what it does for us today. When we think of believe, we think of, I accept that fact. Two plus two is four. Yeah, I believe that. Or that chair will hold me up. I believe that. that because we're such an informational knowledge, post-enlightenment kind of a culture, that belief is mostly in the, um, not the skeptical, but the uh, speculative and the intellectual and the logical mode. But belief in the Bible is always in the experiential action. The actually the idea that I will put my rear end on this chair and believe that it will hold me up. And this is why the Bible, when you think read the word believe, don't think I accept that as a fact. Think of trust and obey, for there is no other way to be found in Jesus. That's what the Bible means by belief. Which is also very interesting because Abram's not doing anything. Yet the Bible uses a very action-oriented word, believe, and then credits him a very action-oriented righteousness, which strengthens all the more faith that belief can also be a trust that is not always a physical action, which is a lot harder to unpack. So when the thief on the cross believed in Christ, there was a sense of a deep righteous action happening there that we can't always see in an absolute sitting your rear end on a chair kind of way. And this strengthens the idea that now knows too, God didn't declare, declare Abram to be righteous. Oh wow, you're really righteous, Abram. It says that he credited to Abram righteousness. Meaning that Abram is not a righteous man. In fact, he's going to screw it up immediately after God declares him righteous. He is a man of great faith. And God then says that faith makes you righteous. Because if you truly do have faith and trust in God, then righteous actions will begin to follow. And this is the argument of the Second Testament, that if there is no fruit, then you're not truly believing and you're not truly righteous. But fruit does not make you righteous, but righteous people do produce fruit. And that's the argument here. So we should expect Abram to believe. Now notice the other thing too, has God made a covenant with him yet? 
which means you shouldn't be doubting Abram's faith because Abram says, I need a covenant. And you're like, oh, you're not believing, Abram. But then God says, I'm going to give you a son from your own body. And Abram believes, and there's no covenant yet, and God declares him righteous. Which means he's believing before the law, because a covenant is a type of a law. One does not need the law to have faith. One does not need the law to be righteous. One does not need the law to be saved. So what is faith, then? One of my biggest pet peeves on faith is when somebody's dying of cancer in the hospital or they got a broken leg and somebody comes in and says, I have faith that you'll be healed. No, you don't. And I'm sorry if I'm offending you, but you can't have faith that that person will be healed. Because what does that mean then? What heals them then? How many do all people get healed? In fact, most of the time, people don't get healed. So if you are not basing that on the track record of God, then what are you basing that they'll get healed on? How much you believe. Now, you may not totally believe that when you're saying those words, but deep down inside, you're believing that the more I believe, the more I prayer, the more this will happen, so I believe I'll have faith. And we'll just pray, and we'll pray into healing. Now, I'm not trying to knock prayer at all, and I'm not trying to say prayer does change things. But we know that you can pray your heart out content, and 50 million people can do it, and you still won't see a miracle. But you've made yourself the object of faith. Here's what faith is. Faith is first a knowledge of God. You must know who God is to have faith in them. Look, I can't have faith or trust in a person that I don't know. If I have no knowledge of who you are, then I can't say, I believe that you'll be there for me when I need you. I don't know that. So I have to have a knowledge of who God is in his character, and I have to have the knowledge of his will the things that he desires. Same thing with my wife. The only way I can trust her is if I know her well enough and I know what she desires and wants to happen. So you have to have a knowledge of someone or something first before you can trust and have faith in them. The second, now Abram has that. So this is why we can't blame Abraham too much for not having a whole lot of faith in Egypt because he doesn't really have a whole lot of knowledge of who God is. The second thing you need to have is an acknowledgement, an agreement. You have to agree with who that person is and what their plan is. Like there's lots of people that I know, but I don't agree with them. Like, hey, I think we should build our church this way. I don't agree with that. Or I think we should build our company this way. I don't agree with that. I think we should raise our kids this way. I don't agree with that. Which means, am I going to trust people that I don't agree with the way that they want to execute a plan? Or I don't agree with their character? So there's lots of people that I have lots of knowledge of, but that doesn't mean I have trust and faith in them because I don't agree with who the type of person they are, and I don't agree with the way that they want to execute things. Does that make sense? By Abram following God shows that he agrees with him. The third thing that you need to have in order to have faith is a love commitment. 
Because I can say, yeah, I really know who you are, and I agree with the way that we should build this company, but I'm not committed. I don't have time for that. I've got other things on to do, and, and yeah, I really think that's cool, but that's not my passion in life. Or yeah, I love you, and I agree with you, and that kind of stuff, but there's these other things I'd rather do instead. And so you have to actually commit yourself in such a way that you bind yourself to them, which means you allow them to affect you and change you. If I commit myself to somebody, I'm going to change them and they're going to change me. That will happen. And that's what we're seeing in Abram. Abram has a knowledge of God, he agrees with God, and he commits himself to God, and it begins to change him. And that means you're going to take risk. You have to take risk. Because relationships without risk do not deepen. Because there's a certain point where I have to step out and say, yes, I trust you, but I also know that there might be ways that you will not meet that trust. And so you have to take a risk. And yeah, God will never fail you, but that doesn't mean we always believe that he will never fail us. If we did, we would have perfect faith. And that then leads you to the last one, and this is hope. And this is the true, this is the icing on the cake, what everybody sees when it comes to faith. And that is, hope is not, I hope it happens. I really hope Ohio State wins, because we know that won't always happen. Or, I hope I win the lottery, or I hope I get better of cancer. That's wishful thinking. Hope is desire plus expectancy based on promises of God. And that's the key to faith. It's I hope that this will happen because it hasn't happened yet. So all I'm left with is a future tense. But I expect it to happen because I know who you are and I agree with your plan and you've proven yourself so reliable that I know that you will faithfully execute that. And so I, ha- I can expect the second coming of Jesus Christ because he's proven himself trustworthy on the first coming And here's the second most important part of that hope, the on the basis of God's promises. I can expect that I have a life filled with joy if I obey God, because God promised me joy if I pursue him in a relationship. I can expect and even demand to feel content and satisfied in my life if I'm obedient with God, because God promised that to me based on a track record of knowledge of God. But I cannot have hope and have faith that I will be healed of this sickness because God has never promised that. Now, I can have hope and faith that he will ultimately heal me of that sickness and the second coming in my resurrection because he has promised that. But the only way I can truly have hope that God will heal me is if God comes to me and says, I'm going to heal you. And I, in faithfulness to Deuteronomy 13 and 18 and 1 John 4, have tested that spirit and know that it actually is God. Then I can have faith that I'll be healed. Does that make sense? Which means when Abram has faith and God declares him righteous, it's because Abram knows God so well and he knows God's plan 
and that he's seen God faithful so many times that he agrees with it and he commits himself to God. Therefore, he believes that he will have a son and he expects to have a son because God said it. That's faith. And that's what leads into righteousness. Because if I have that kind of a faith, then I can't help but begin to act upon that. Right? And this is the argument that James is making, that works and fruit is essential. But works and fruit is easy if you have that kind of a faith. Because your works can never come through your own wishful thinking and your own efforts. But if you find Christ as the true object of your faith, and you commit to that, then the works will just begin to happen. And I don't mean overnight, but some are longer than others, but they will come. And that does not require the law. Because this is the point that I was going to make. If I know God well, because John says, if you love me, you obey me. And then I'll go to the Father, and he'll reveal more of who he is to you, and then you, the cycle begins over again. So if I really am pursuing God in a relationship, then I will get to know him a lot. And then as I trust in him, he'll prove himself faithful, and I'll get to know him more. And then what will begin to happen is I'll just naturally begin to obey him and produce fruits and works because I'm so faithful to who he is. And he does the transforming. Yes. Hope is desire plus expectancy based on the promises of God. Based on the promises of God. I can only have faith and hope in what God has promised me. This is the faith. And notice that God didn't just use the word righteousness, but he used the word faithfulness, loyalty allegiance. Abraham is committed. Abraham is committed. 